No, I'll pop it down there. Okay, is this on? Great, fantastic. Joe, you know I don't even like rich tea biscuits, so I hope that's not what's on offer. Um, well, good morning. I just, I think, have we got time? Have we got time? We've got time. I just want to do something very, very quickly. We've just been singing about God breaking every chain. I know that there will be a number of people here today that feel like they need breakthrough and they just want someone to stand with them and pray with them. So we're going to do that now, just for two minutes. I know that there will be many people in here, so I'm just going to count to three. And if you feel like either you're sick or there's a situation in your house that you're like, God, I need you to break in in this situation, I'm just going to ask you to be really brave and stand. You will not be the only one. There will be many in here, okay? So if you feel like you just want someone to stand with you for one minute and pray into your situation, I'm going to ask you to stand in three seconds. Ready? One, two, three, stand up. Fantastic. Brilliant. Okay, I think there's just one or two more. So if you, okay, fantastic. So take a look around. This is where us as a church body can get engaged. We're going to lay hands on these guys and we're going to spend two minutes just praying for God to break in to their situation. Is that okay? So let's just be really active. So everyone else, if you're a part of this body, if you're a Christian, let's just stand up. Let's just make sure that everyone has got at least one or two people with their hands on them. If you haven't yet got someone with your hands on you, maybe just put your hand up just so we know who wants prayers. There's a couple in the middle here. We're just going to lay hands. There's a couple on the back corner there. Thank you very much. So let's just two minutes, we're just going to lift our voices and just say, God, would you break into their situation? If, you, if there's something specific, you may just want to mention it if you feel comfortable to the guys around you. I've just got sickness here or there's a situation. We're just going to spend two minutes just quickly praying into these situations. Father, we lift up every dear person who's standing right now. And as we've just been seeing, we know that what you have done means that every chain is broken because of your victory on the cross. And Lord, we just say right now, we want more and more deposits of the heavenlies right now in our situation. So we speak to everyone who's sick and we just speak healing right now in the name of Jesus. The resurrected, redeeming, victorious name of Jesus, we say be healed right now. And we speak to every situation of desperation, of isolation, of neglect, of rejection, whatever symptoms, whatever things are going on in these people's lives, we just speak the life of God over them right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good. Great. I'm pleased we did that. Okay, why don't you take your seats? As Hannah said, my name's Alid. I'm one of the members here at Kingsland, part of the leadership team. And it's my privilege to continue us in our preach series at the moment, which is the book of Romans. The book of Romans. So if you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you turn to Romans chapter 2. And for those that are maybe new in this morning, haven't heard the first few parts of the series, just to kind of fill you, fill you in on a few details... It's, uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul, uh, roughly about 58 uh, AD, and he's writing it as a letter to the church in Rome. And he outlines this amazingly good news of the gospel. That's what Paul's writing about, that's what he's sharing about. 
And he says this in verse, in, in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he unpacks in this letter how it's not just for the Jews, it's not just for the Jews, it's for everyone who believes there's this wonderful good news of the gospel. But why? Why is it good news? Well, Paul starts in chapter 1 by describing the awful state of humanity. The awful state that we have all got ourselves into. He starts uh, saying how we have rejected God. He says how all of us as humans, we've not only done what is sinful in his sight, but we've even suppressed the truth of who he is. We even deny his very existence as God. He says this in verse 21 of chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And Paul goes on to actually uh, list a load of behaviours and attitudes that stem from this parting of living a life with God. And he says things like this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Hands up, who wants to live in a society like that? Newsflash, we all do. We all do. This is what happens when people reject God and go their own way. And the Apostle Paul spends much of chapter 1 telling us how some of the outworking of God's judgment, some of the outworking of his wrath, is that he actually hands us over to our sin. He gives them up to the lusts of their heart and the sinful patterns of their lives. You read it in verse 24 of chapter 1, verse 26, 28. This phrase, he gave them up to their sin. And that's part of God's outpouring of wrath, is that I'm just going to let you go on with your sinful ways. And today we get to chapter 2, so let's have a look. It's quite a long passage, I'll read it briefly for us, and then I'll do my best to try and pick out a few things for us. That'll be helpful. Okay, so chapter 2 says this. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, referring to what we've just kind of listed and the things we've just discussed. But do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. That's interesting. To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking 
And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But God also, sorry, but God, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, sorry. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Talking about the written law of God that he gave to the Jews. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. (gasps) Sharp intake of breath. What a passage. I've titled this message today, You've Been Summoned. (laughs) I think we need to pray, don't you? God, I just pray that as we tackle what is a very challenging scripture i pray god would you do something in our hearts (laughs) there is not one person in here today that does not need you desperately so i just say god whether we're people who are so aware of our sin or whether we think we're doing pretty well i just say god would you soften our hearts and let us receive this challenge today in jesus name Amen. Okay, I'm going to, as best as I can, um, work our way through the text, picking out a few things uh, that stand um, out most for me. The first thing or the first heading that I want us to look at is this. God's judgment is inescapable. That's good news, isn't it? God's judgment is inescapable, or if you like, unavoidable. There's um, something actually quite interesting about the structure of uh, this text, Uh, We know that within the book of Romans, uh, Paul is addressing both uh, Jewish people and Gentiles, that is unbelievers, people that are non-Jewish. There certainly would have been both in the church that that Paul is writing to. And he, he writes this section actually almost to like a hypothetical person. It's a type of writing called a diatribe. And he's basically writing to you, O man, you, O man. And it's as though he's trying to make a catch-all statement for anyone and everyone who up to now would be nodding in agreement saying, yeah, hear, hear, yes, yes, those full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. Yes, of course, they do deserve the wrath of God. And of course, there would have been many Jews following the law and having this background behind them would have been saying that very thing. Absolutely, the wrath of God for that kind of lifestyle, for that kind of unrighteousness. And Paul turns this completely on his head. These people that feel that they're somehow a better person or somehow able to judge others as worse than themselves. And he says this, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It is so easy to judge, isn't it? Isn't it? I think we all do it. But it's so easy to make judgments 
on other people. It's so easy, actually, for us to rate sin. It's all around us. We're surrounded by every day. So we could have, say, the really serious sins over here. And then we could have maybe some of the lighter sins over here. Those things that affect and hurt and upset other people might be more down this end. But those sins in my mind, those things that don't affect anyone else, they're kind of okay. But we know from the Bible that God doesn't make judgments like we do. He doesn't make judgments like that. In fact, Jesus had quite a bit, a bit to say about this in Matthew 5. He says, okay, you may not have killed a man, but if you harbor anger and bitterness in your heart towards him, the judgment will be the same. you still be judged. You may not have gone and slept with her, but i tell you what, if you even had that, if you processed that in your mind, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus showed that for God, his judgment and his wrath is not triggered by any particular stage down the sin line, whatever we've created. He says that all sin is a significant failing of God's standard and God's glory. In fact, Paul says later on in this book, in chapter 323, he says that all of us have fallen short of it. All of us. So regardless of how aware of your sin you are or how well you're doing, the Bible clearly teaches, and in this book it says, you have not met the mark. It's not about our comparisons to other people. It's not about Jews comparing themselves to Gentiles. He says, no, the bar is set and not one person has been able to meet the mark. All of us are counted as unrighteous. John Stott says this, This is not a call either to suspend our critical faculties or to renounce all criticism or rebuke of others as illegitimate. It is rather a prohibition of standing in judgment on other people and condemning them, especially when we fail to condemn ourselves. For this is the hypocrisy of the double standard, a high standard for other people and a comfortably low one for myself. That is one of the problems of sin, is that we've set all of us ourselves, we've set ourselves a comfortably low level of what sin is okay. For God, it's not okay. It's never actually been about our standards. It's not ever actually been about my standards for myself or for other people. And you know, yes, some people have committed some absolute atrocities. And we could see things in the news and and we could actually say, I I cannot ever see myself doing something like that. But you know, if we use that as our measure of righteousness, we're always going to count ourselves as much better than everyone else. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's so easy for us to look at others and make judgments based on our own standards and expectations. But that is not the standard, friends. That is not the standards that we shall be judged one day. God's standard is the blueprint to which we shall all get judged one day. Phil Moore says this, I think it will come up behind me. It says, conservative moralists look down on sinful people. Oh, I can't believe they do that. And liberal moralists look down on the narrow-minded. Ease up. But either way, they fail to look up and see the truth about God's standard and how far their man-made morality falls short of them. Paul says we have all fallen short of the standard, God's standard, 
We have all been summoned. One day we will all be judged. And we are all deserving, because of our frailty and our sin, we are all deserving of God's wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. God's judgment is inescapable. Now, interestingly, Paul goes on to say about some of the great characteristics of God, like his kindness, like his forbearance, like his patience. And he says this, don't presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. In other words, don't be fooled. God may be patient, but there will still be judgment. His patience will only go on for so long. And this period of patience or forbearness is because God's desire, we read in the Bible, that God's desire is that all men will be saved. God's desire is that everyone may come to a knowledge of the truth. Recognize, I'm such a sinner. God, I need you in my life. And God allows this period of time. In fact, the Greek word in this passage for patience could actually literally be translated in English as long-suffering. God has allowed himself to suffer the ongoing travesty of sin and rebellion so that many may come to an understanding of the truth and be freed and be released from this day of judgment. But don't be fooled. Judgment shall certainly come. John Piper says this, In other words, God's justice does not demand that he punish us for our sins immediately, but his kindness leads him to forbear and to be patient with us. Do you know what? God is so patient with you. He is so patient with me. But Paul says this patience, this forbearance, this kindness, this time is to allow us to come to a place of recognizing the sin in our lives and come to a place of just getting on our knees and saying, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own. So Paul tells us that not only is part of God's wrath demonstrated in him handing us over to our sinful ways, but Paul also says that there will one day be a day, there will be a day where everyone shall be judged And he says, the fullness of God's wrath shall be poured out on all those that are disobedient and unrighteous. God's judgment is inescapable, it's unavoidable. And then the Apostle Paul moves on to describe how God is completely impartial in his judgments. Basically, that means there has never been a fairer judge. You can't bribe him, you will not get off on a technicality in court. He is the righteous judge, which means he is the right judge for the job, and he will do it rightly. That's what it means. He is the righteous judge. And so that's our next point. God's judgment is righteous. It's righteous. Now, let me be honest. I imagine at this point, a number of us feel rather uncomfortable. All right? In fact, maybe even defensive or even offended by what we're reading. And I think that's probably because we haven't quite understood or grasped the seriousness of our sin. We don't quite understand the severity of the offence. And I think that's why he labours on this point again 
And again, if you've been here through the whole of this series so far, you must think, man, we've done three, four weeks on the wrath of God. Do you know, if Paul places such an emphasis on this through these first couple of passages, we've got to understand it, guys. We've got to, grip, we've got to get a grip on it. If we're really going to understand how wonderful the gospel is, we've got to understand the big picture that's painted behind it, which is how awful sin is and how much it's been trapped in our lives all over. Wherever we look, sin has tainted everything. John Piper again says this, Not many people are willing to admit that deep down inside they are really flawed and proud and selfish and rebellious and therefore separated from God and in need of what the Bible calls salvation. So God will judge us, but how will he judge us? How will he judge fairly? How will he judge impartially? And I find this really interesting. It says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Say that, works? Works. He will judge us according to our works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the evidence that shall be brought uh, for us or against us on judgment day will be in the works that we do. Isn't that interesting? Because if you're like me, you think, but Alid, I thought Paul was really for the saved by faith kind of thing. Surely we're not saved by works. Surely it's, it's saved by faith. It's by grace in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Once saved, always saved. Like, what is it, these things that we stand by in the Bible? What's Paul saying? Paul is saying this. It is absolutely only in faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again. It's only in faith in him that you can receive resurrected life. Absolutely. But Paul says, Paul says this. A change in position will lead to a change in a person. That's what he says. You were outside of Christ. Now you're in Christ. That will lead to change. A change in position leads to a change in a person. Their motives, their passions, their behaviors, their wallets, their diaries, their conversations, their attitudes, all change. They all change when they recognize their need for Christ and choose to follow him wholeheartedly. Say, so you're the Lord of my life, my whole life. And you know, this is actually no different to what the rest of the Bible teaches. Um, we see it in Matthew 16, 27, if you're writing them down to Timothy 4, 14, 1 Peter 1, 17. In fact, I think it's in Matthew 25, Jesus even talks about this judgment day and he, and he uses the, the picture of sheep and goats, sheep being believers and goats being those that don't believe. And he says that they'll be judged, they'll be separated by their works. By their works. Now, what's interesting is that clearly a, a goat and a sheep, as similar as they may look, are very different animals. He doesn't say, oh, therefore the sheep go over there and the goat's over there. No, he does part them that way, but only because the sheep and the goat have things which are uniquely different because they are different animals. Does that make sense? He's not parting them because they're sheep and goats. They're parting them based on the works which stems out of what they are. 
It's exactly the same as fruit. All right? We use this analogy sometimes. I might have a tree, and we might say, I have no idea what that tree is. But the fruit that grows on the tree, as soon as it starts dropping pears, you can see the type of tree it is. That's a pear tree. You don't look at the pears and say, oh, now it's a pear tree. No, it always was. But it's the evidence from it which makes you say, that's a pear tree. Does that make sense? So God isn't looking at the works of our lives and saying, well, therefore, you must be a sheep. No, you come in already. Already redeemed, already purchased, already paid. You come in, you're either a believer or you're not. And he'll say, this is why we know he's a believer, because look at the works. Look at the fruits. He is a pear tree, but look at the pears. Does that make sense? The tree defines the fruit, not the other way around. And I think we really need to be careful in our keeping away from legalism, which I think is right, that we don't stray so far that we actually neglect the good biblical principle of good works. So does that mean that we have to do this and we have to do that? And we have to? No, it's not talking about have. It's talking about these are the fruits that will naturally occur when you become more and more like Jesus. Actually, your desire is that I do want to read more and I do want to pray more and I do want to do this kind of stuff because it's life to me. It's not that, oh, I better go to church then because maybe that will get me in God's good books. That's the complete wrong way around. You will not get saved. You will not get on that judgment day and have a good hearing before God if all you do is go to church, pray, read your Bible and do that stuff. It's all good stuff, but if that's what you're trying to achieve by doing it, I'm afraid you're going to have a real shock. It's only through the blood of Jesus. It's only in our relationship with him and by his grace. When we say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life, my DNA, my very preferences change. I actually, I don't want to hunger after that stuff anymore. I want to hunger after this stuff. And it's that fruit which is a demonstration that God has done something in my heart, not just in my hands. It's not just what I'm saying and what I'm doing. Actually, my very heart, my DNA has changed because he has done it. I'm unable to do it myself, but he has done it. So let me just ask you a question. And this is in no way legalistic. All right, let me ask you a question. If your works, if your works, and I'm talking about what you have in your mind, what you do with your hands, what you say with your mouth, if they were presented up on the screen this morning, maybe let's just pick the last two weeks, the last month, your works, if they were presented up on the screen this morning for everyone to see, what tree would they look like they've come from? And look, Don't hear what I'm not saying. We are not perfect. I'm not perfect. There'll be certain fruit in my life, even this week, that I just say, that doesn't honor God. But if you were to look at the general fruit that is growing on your tree, the likeness that you're becoming more and more like, is it more like Christ's fruit? Or is it more like the fruit of unrighteousness that we picked up in chapter 1? Interestingly, Paul even gives us a few kind of litmus tests in chapter 1. He says things like, do you get caught up in gossip? Do you readily get caught up in gossip? Do you enjoy it? Because that's not a fruit of a Christian. It says very clearly in chapter 1, that's the fruit of unrighteousness. Are you jealous for what others have got? Do you swindle figures or hide income? Maybe you don't quite uh, declare all of the tax on the cash-in-hand jobs. Do you like to be the center of attention and elevate yourself? 
Are you disobedient to your parents? I wonder what picture your Facebook or your Twitter or your Instagram profile will paint of you and the fruit in your life. That would be an interesting exercise. Let's just put all of your photos and your messages up for the last month. I wonder what kind of fruit that would present. It's challenging, isn't it? Does that mean that if we do good works and we'll be saved? Absolutely not. But does that mean that there will be people even in here today that proclaim that they follow Jesus, but on judgment day, the real fruit of your life that will be brought to bear would actually not look very Christ-like? I'm afraid the answer is absolutely. I think there will be. And that is a really sobering challenge for all of us. It's something that we all need to think about and consider seriously. We'll be judged based on how seriously we take that statement, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Well, how is he Lord of your life on the internet? How is he Lord of your life and your finances? Now, Paul knows the temptation to fall into the trap of legalism, and so he takes this just a little bit further, and he starts talking about the law that was given to the Jews, because it can seem a little bit unfair, isn't it? If it's about works and how you do stuff, but the Jews, they've been given the law, and the Gentiles, they haven't. How is that fair? And so he he starts talking about this statement. He said, it's not those that know the law or hear the law, it's the doers of the law that will be justified. So we understand how Gentiles and unbelievers have failed to fulfill the law, despite having the understanding, he says, or, the, or, or the, the knowledge of right and wrong in their hearts, in their conscience. Paul says, people know if it's right or wrong to kill someone. People know if it's right and wrong to swiddle figures. They don't need to be told in a rule box to do that. But he then also says that even for the Jews who had the law written down and knew the law very well, they too were unable in and of themselves to fulfill that law. You understand that? That's why I had to keep making sacrifices. It was a sacrifice knowing that there was one that would come that would be able to fulfill the law and make them righteous. So everyone here is in the same boat. Here's God's standard, and everyone has failed to meet it. Even the Jews who had the law and could be tempted to look down on others and say, look at my righteous life. Yes, even those have miserably missed the mark of righteousness and will not miss the inescapable judgment of God. Friends, all of us are in desperate need of a saviour. And what a saviour he is. I know in the coming weeks we're going to be looking at God's solution to this huge problem of sin. But I just can't resist just spending one minute before we finish highlighting what I think are the best words actually of this whole text that we've read today. And then the very last passage, the very last words of the passage says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Have you ever really thought about that? that the judge on that judgment day is going to be King Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus, our judge, and our defense. Just think about that for a minute. I remember growing up and thinking that Jesus was somehow this loving intermediary between sinful men 
and a wrathful God. And that's how I think a lot of people see the Father, see Jesus. He's the guy who just kind of bypasses the judgment of his Father. But we see here that that's not the case. The person in the judgment throne isn't the Father, it's Jesus himself. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. And do you know what? It's Jesus who is the very person, he's our greatest defense. Just think about that. The person who is bringing judgment is all the person who says, he is with me. Just imagine going to a courtroom and the judge says, I'm also your defense. You're in a pretty good place, aren't you? Just imagine that. We see that the good news of the gospel and what we shall be unpicking in the coming weeks is that Jesus, the righteous judge of all the earth, has such a great desire to save people from sin and death and judgment that he acts in history to provide this good news gospel that when it comes to a day of judgment, he doesn't have to say guilty. He can say, you're with me, you're set free, you're redeemed. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus, he's the righteous judge of all the earth. He is also our greatest offence. What God is leading us to in this season, guys, is a place of repentance. A place where we can just say, God, in your patience, in your kindness, in your forbearance, God, I know that my worst efforts and my best efforts, whether I be from Jewish descent or whether I be from Gentile descent, whether I be from... God, I cannot do it on my own. But praise God that the judge became the sacrifice. That the judge who is going to pay, who is going to say this is the judgment, has already paid. Has already paid. Let's just quickly pray. Father, thank you that uh, these passages aren't missed out in the Bible. Lord, thank you that you don't just make it easy or more palatable for us, but you really give us the real deal. You give us the raw stuff and just say, you need Jesus. And so, Lord, I just, I just pray for every person in this room. I pray for those that have never heard about Jesus before. I say, God, would you soften their hearts? Would they come to a place of repentance today? And I pray for each and every person in this place today, that maybe have lived the life, the Christian life, and they feel that they're doing it in a good place, I pray, God, would you break our hearts if there is any way in us, if there is any bad fruit in us that testifies that we are not of you, we say, God, would you, would you forgive us? And we say, we want to live for you wholeheartedly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? Dan is going to lead us in a song, and then Paul will take some from there.